Love and Haste by Andrew Colcher. Chapter 3 After leaving his breakfast cup and bowl in the exact spot they would still be in on his return, Sam put on his coat and left the house to go to work. His face bore no particular expression of either joy or misery. His morning routine revealed that here was a man who was so deep in a rut that if life threw him a rope he'd probably assume he was for hanging himself, rather than actually climbing out and escaping misery. Sam wasn't at all depressed. Depression requires complex thought, and this early in the morning Sam was barely able to put his trousers on the right way around, let alone contemplate his place in life, the universe and everything. As he left the house each morning at 8am, Sam was shuffling proof that until a suitable amount of caffeine has been absorbed, mankind is liable to slip a few rungs back down the evolutionary ladder. While Sam was checking his door was locked for the fourth or maybe fifth time, he heard a ghostly voice calling his name. He turned around and peered through the gloomy half-light of that winter's morning and tried to figure out what being of the spirit world wanted his attention. It wasn't a voice from the other side of the dark veil that was calling Sam that morning. It was a voice from the other side of the front garden fence, and it belonged to his neighbour Mrs Locke. Mrs. Locke is a lady in her early 80s who would most likely clip you around the ear if you dared suggest that she was at all ghostly. The only reason she was trying to attract Sam's attention using that weird, reedy, hissy, ghostly voice was that she didn't want to accidentally attract the attention of anyone else in the street because she was ashamed of her tatty old housecoat. Although you wouldn't think so the way she held the neck of it so close to her chest. She called Sam over to the small gap she had opened in her living room window and shoved a piece of paper into his hand. Keep it, darling, and get this for me, was all she said before she closed the window, pulled down the blind, and retreated back to her tea and toast. Sam looked at the prescription Mrs. Locke had given him with an almost invisible shrug. He put it into his coat and turned toward to his car. When Sam was growing up, his dad did his best to equip his only son with all the advice that a young man needs to make his way in the world. Although he was a clever man, Sam's dad wasn't very imaginative. Most of the advice he passed on to his boy came in the form of cliched sayings which were useless, irrelevant, or an unhappy combination of both. His advice to always put your best foot forward served Sam particularly badly this morning as the first step he made towards his car placed his foot, his right one if you need to know that sort of detail, neatly into the middle of a muddy puddle that was just a little bit deeper than the ankle of his shoe. Sam paused for a moment and stared down at his shoe. I mean, he really stared at it. He stared at that shoe the way anyone would in a similar situation. A good, long, hard, concentrated stare driven by a doomed hope that what had just happened could somehow unhappen if it could only be stared at for long enough. It's a feeling of desperation usually followed, in all of us, by foul language and an unquenchable desire to blame anyone but ourselves for the misfortune. Sam's lips were just starting to form a word that starts with the letter F when the rain came. This wasn't just a light shower. This was the sort of rain that arrives horizontally and in such quantities that if Sam had lifted his face to the sky to curse God with his mouth, his mouth probably would have filled up with water. Instead of risking being drowned by saying something threatening to the big lad upstairs, Sam stomped off down his garden path, pausing only to swear under his breath because someone had, yet again, decided the best place to dispose of their unwanted kebab remains was Sam's recycling bin.
This soiling of Sam's bins was a regular occurrence, and the closenesses of the Istanbul II house of kebab and fried chicken had long since lost the sense of convenience and novelty that it held in Sam's mind when he first moved to the area. A few months prior to this rain-soaked morning, the local council had sent Sam a penalty notice for persistently contaminating his segregated waste. Sam started padlocking his wheelie bin shut, but that had come to an end the morning an irate bin man had damn near hammered down his door to inform them that because he had padlocked his bin shut, said bin had bounced off the back of the loading system on the refuse truck and nearly effing killed us all. It's a sad reflection of Sam's love life that the only thing in his life doing any kind of effing was his wheelie bin. By the time Sam had reached what remained of the old Mercedes station wagon that he called his car, the rain was coming down so furiously that it bounced off the roof and into his eyes, making it very difficult to put the key into the lock. Once inside the car, the noise of the rain thrumming off the car roof was deafening. Sam fumbled for the door handle, and with more aggression than was strictly necessary, he slammed the door shut. The god of car karma only allowed Sam a second or two of relief from the elements, before there was a faint sound of falling rust followed by the rather louder sound of the window falling into the middle of the door and smashing into a very precise number of very tiny pieces. Such is the nature of German precision engineering. If Sam knew I was talking to you about him, he'd probably prefer me not to describe his drive to work that morning in too much detail. So let's just say the fact his Mercedes windscreen wipers were terrifically efficient had his positivity somewhat dulled by the truth that, due to a quirk of the car's aerodynamics, each time the windscreen wipers cleared a large volume of water from the windscreen, its wet harvest was neatly delivered through the gap where the driver's door window should have been and directly into Sam's face. After about 13 miles of rattling, his car, and grumbling, him, up the A14, Sam arrived at the steel-fenced haulage compound in Felixstowe that contained the porter cabin in which he worked. If you're fortunate enough not to know what a porter cabin is, I'll take this opportunity to describe them to you. They're like a low, wide, ugly flat roof mobile home, only without the wheels, the home comforts, or the opportunity to move on if you don't like your neighbours. In order to cut costs, the haulage company that Sam works for never got around to installing heating in this particular port cabin, so the staff take in their own blow heaters and jealously hide the heat under their desks. On rainy days, the amount of hot crotch fragranced air being blown around Sam's workplace steams up the windows, and when combined with his colleagues' enthusiasm for ignoring the anti-smoking laws, this creates an atmosphere that Lucifer himself would describe as a bit muggy. Another problem with portacombs is their size. Sam's place of work consisted of a kitchen area the size of a toilet cubicle, a toilet cubicle the size of a stationary cupboard, and a stationary cupboard that had a foul smell that no one could figure out how to cure. The porter cabin partition that Sam's boss occupied, with a siege-like grimness, was the size of a woman's toilet with three cubicles, and was only slightly larger than the room that Sam shared with his four colleagues. I can't really describe them as workmates because there was nothing matey about them. Sam had long suspected that this porter cabin may actually have been a toilet block in a former life. His boss had two hand dryers mounted on the wall either side of his desk, and on especially cold days the noise they made as they switched on and off made it sound a little bit like two jet engines were having a disagreement in his office. Sam's desk was on the far side of the room from the front door of the office, so Sam had to squeeze past the sweaty backs of his four colleagues in order to reach his own desk. 
His was the only desk that faced a wall instead of a window. But in times of torrential rain, at least he could make use of the paper towel dispenser bolted to the wall just above his computer screen. Even although he'd left a trail of water between the door and his desk, and despite the fact he had to push past four other people in the room, nobody appeared to have noticed Sam's arrival that wet January morning. Well, nearly nobody. As soon as he sat down, Sam's boss yelled above the howling of his two hand dryers and demanded a cup of tea. There's little chance it's a coincidence that his boss waits until Sam has sat down before demanding drinks. He does it every day. Many months ago, before his spirit was finally broken, Sam used to lean into his boss's office and offer a cup of tea as soon as he arrived at work, but his boss would always frown and shake his head, only to demand tea as soon as Sam had settled his ass into the groove that he'd shaped into his office chair. He might be wondering why it's Sam's job to make the tea, and the answer is as simple as it is unfair. Sam is the youngest employee. The routine of Sam's boss yelling for tea was as predictable as each of his co-workers wordlessly lifting an empty mug for Sam to take as he squeezes back past him on his way to the micro-kitchenette. His colleagues' mugs are stained almost black with the memory of thousands of cups of cheap, shitty tea, and each cup contains a little collection of soggy doggins. I'd love to tell you that despite their gruff, uncaring exteriors, Sam's fellow porter cabin detainees had hearts of gold and appreciated every drink that Sam was kind enough to brew for them. But you just know that's not going to be true, so I won't waste either your time or mine by telling porky pies. There's no polite way to describe the way these low-foreheaded fools treated our Sam, so I'll sum it up by saying they were fucking bastards. I do apologise if the strength of language offends you, but when I tell you what they did to Sam that morning while he was making their tea, I'm sure you'll agree that my profanity was justified. While he was waiting for the kettle to boil, the troglodyte who occupies the desk nearest to Sam pulled a screwdriver from his pocket and removed a crucial part when Sam returned from handing out the hot drinks and sat down in his chair. It dropped a foot lower than he was expecting it to, this causing the cup of boiling tea to empty over his chest. In a panic, Sam reached under his chair and pulled the first lever his fingers found. Unfortunately, this made the chair drop so low that the poor bugger nearly knocked himself out on his own desk. The laughter from everyone else in the room was so loud it made Sam's ears ring. As he turned round wide-eyed and scolded, he saw his boss arrive on the scene with tears of joy in his eyes and his phone in his hand, ready to take photos of the sorry scene. By nature, Sam is a passive man, but there's only so much anyone can take. However, Sam could take more than most, and this was not going to be the moment he would choose to fight back. His parents raised him to be cautiously risk-averse and to always give others the benefit of the doubt, and to try and see the good in all people. As he turned back to his computer that morning, peering up over the edge of the desk like a kid at a pub bar, he had to look very hard to find the good in anyone. The mean-hearted chuckling in the room subsided and Sam got to work. Back in January, when all the above was happening, Sam's job title was Junior Traffic Controller. Despite the fact he'd now been with the firm nearly as the other traffic controllers, bastards, in the room, he was still a few years younger and therefore still considered junior. A traffic controller in a haulage firm spends his day sending trucks off here, there, and at least within Europe, everywhere to pick up things, make deliveries, and generally charge about the highways and byways, keeping stores stocked and goods delivered. In spite of the knobs he worked with, Sam had a great deal of affection for his job. For him, being a traffic controller made him feel like the shepherd of lorries, a wrangler of wagons, a marshal of movement, and many other alliterations beside. Sure, his boss put him under an immense amount of pressure to perform, 
and he knew only too well that his fellow traffic controllers could just stop looking at internet porn for five minutes, an obsession possibly brought on by them having hot air blown at their crotches all day long, that the company would have a great reputation for always being on target, always being on time, but, 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 Sam knew there was a but even bigger than the butts of his co-workers, and that huge but was that he knew the truth was that he was only sitting in that port cabin every day because he was too scared to leave his job. That lunchtime, after picking up Mrs Locke's prescription, of course, Sam sat staring out over the North Sea on a rotting bench on Felix Doe's seafront. He was thinking about all the times his customers had yelled and cussed at him for the mistakes that the other traffic controllers, bastards, had made. He watched an enormous container ship slowly slide across the horizon, bound for distant shores, and he longed to be on that ship, away from his job and escaping from everything. The early afternoon sun beamed through a break in the grey clouds and lit up the side of another ship in a warm orange glow as it tipped over the horizon. The light made the carefully stacked containers look like Lego, and the thought made Sam smile a little. It was a smile that he lost when his thoughts returned to the afternoon facing him when he returned to the office. Aside from the usual hassle of his job, there would be the usual number of tasteless jokes to part with his colleagues. But they would be nowhere near as bad as the racist, sexist, homophobic and just downright sick jokes that his boss would spend the afternoon emailing around the office. There'd be the usual fug of smoke from shitty cheap cigarettes polluting his air, and the relentless demands for cups of tea would just be too much. But worse than any of these thoughts was the thought of the review meeting Sam had scheduled that afternoon with his boss. Sam looked down into the bottom of his empty cup of takeaway coffee. Now he'd drunk enough caffeine to feel properly depressed. Just as his mood was about to fall to a new low, he saw two stray dogs humping on the beach and smiled bitterly. Because maybe not all life was devoid of fun, just his life. <laughs> Exactly the same time that Sam Curtis was finding hope in the scene with the dogs, a scene that most folk would probably rather not stare at for too long, Charlie Page was pulling makeup faces into a small mirror on the back of her front door. After a few minor corrections, Charlie stepped out of her house to greet the clear Washington morning, and she gasped at how cold it was and stepped back into her house to put on a nice thick coat. Charlie Page was an attractive woman by any measure and was well used to the occasional admiring looks as she walked a couple of miles to the nearest station on Washington Metro. But on that particular January morning, she got rather a lot more attention than she was used to. The reason was revealed when she saw her reflection in the large glass windows of the Metro station. Her skirt was tucked into her knickers. A ladylike yelp and a discreet shuffle later, Charlie had recomposed herself and made her way through the ticket barriers to the platform. Charlie got off her train at Foggy Bottom Station, a name that would undoubtedly have made Sam chuckle, but it's a name that meant nothing more to Charlie than it being a convenient station from which to stroll to the Lincoln Memorial. Here was a woman with a great fondness for parts of the city that she felt her fellow citizens took for granted, and she always made a point of visiting at least one site of interest each time an appointment took her to the heart of the city. Had Charlie's life rolled along unaffected by events that were about to change her life forever, she would most likely have joined some sort of municipal preservation society. She could have made quite a name for herself among the well-educated, immaculately dressed intelligentsia of Washington DC charity fundraising dinners, but it was not to be. I'm getting ahead of myself though. 
After an admiring glance at the huge Lincoln Memorial, Charlie briskly walked along the National Mall, lifting her face to absorb the glorious winter sun, and I dare say she was enjoying the exhilarating chill as it nips at her nose. The reflecting pool in the middle of the mall was a block of ice struck through with rotting leaves, but on days as clear and bright and crisp as that winter morning, everything looks just a little bit more beautiful. Charlie strode confidently on past the large curved basin of the World War II Memorial, past the tall, sharp needle of the Washington Memorial, and on towards the Capitol building. Apart from a few polite greetings from the ever-cheerful rangers of the National Park Service, and a few little sniffs from curious but friendly dogs, nothing disturbed Charlie's blissful stroll. If you had unlimited funds, you could run a survey of everyone who saw Charlie on a walk up the National Mall that morning, and I'm sure they'd all agree that she looked the very epitome of a woman for whom the world is her oyster. But even if you did have the funds, I wouldn't recommend doing something like that, because it's a bit like of a creepy stalker kind of thing to do, isn't it? However ambitious and Charlie may have looked that cold morning, she wasn't heading for the Capitol building. So a few lefts, and a few right turns later, she arrived at her destination. Well, to be pedantic, I should tell you that she arrived in a coffee shop next door to her destination. After drinking an incredibly expensive skinny something or other, Charlie changed out of her trainers and into the well-polished shoes she had in a giant handbag next to the door. Charlie was warmly greeted by the security guard, and indeed everyone else, as she walked through the large imposing foyer and stepped into a lift. She made use of her short lift ride to clear her throat a few times and check her breath in the cup of her hand. By the time the lift doors had opened, she was ready to take on the world. Only this isn't where Charlie Page works. Because, if truth be told, she doesn't work at all. Oh no, the appointment she had that January morning was with her lawyer. And she was confident that by the end of the meeting, her lawyer would have thought of a way she could screw even more money out of her lying, cheating bastard of an ex-husband. By a remarkable coincidence, at the exact moment Charlie Page's bottom touched down in the expensive leather chair opposite her lawyer's large oak desk, Sam Curtis's slightly tea-stained and soggy bottom also touched down on the cheap plastic patio chair opposite his boss's desk. Neither of them would like the news they were about to receive, but for both of them that bad news might just be the best thing that ever happened to them. Sorry to interrupt and talk over the pretty music, um, which I made, but I just wanted to explain that if you've heard this podcast and enjoyed it, then please subscribe and please do all the rating and, and all that stuff that everyone tells everyone to do these days. I thought it might be worth explaining as well that my podcast comes in two flavours. You've just heard season two, which is me reading a novel, so obviously listen to it in order if you want it to make more sense than it would do if you didn't. The other flavour, season one, runs concurrently and is based on mostly interviews and conversations with inspiring and interesting people with interesting things to say. So subscribe and you get both flavours. How good is that? Right, please like, subscribe and all the stuff that every other podcast host in the world asks you to do. I know everyone asks you to do it, but it's because it makes a huge difference. If you enjoy this, then just please tell people. Please have a look at my alarmingly crappy website at andrewculture.com I should also point out it's deliberately crappy I do this stuff professionally so it's my own 
odd sense of humor. Anyway, I'm just rattling on about a ton of crap now. Let's put the pretty music back on for a second. <laughs> 